This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Russell Subiono. And I'm Lillian Zong. We're in for Catherine Cruz. And today we're focusing on ways you can eat local by revisiting a few of our favorite stories about local food. About 85% of the food consumed on our islands is imported. Many are seeking to change that. But to consume local involves changing our palate and educating ourselves about the journey of our food. Oahu resident Ashley Watts is hoping to contribute to that change. She's the owner of the fishery Local Ia. She calls herself a fishmonger. What? Wait, wait, wait. Fishmonger. It's a term originating in the 13th century, meaning someone who sells fish for food. Fishmonger. Fishmonger. Okay. Okay. And so the conversation Stephanie Hahn got the chance to speak to Watts about fish and owning a business committed to sustainability and community building. We're standing outside of an amazing mural. This is an homage to the Yellow Submarine, am I correct? Yes, so we have a storage area outside and we painted the mural and then my friend also wanted to paint the door and so I decided to go with a submarine theme since it was outside of a, a mural painted with fish and we had the door painted gray and then I decided that we needed to paint it yellow like the yellow submarine from the Beatles song. The storefront to ES Seafood off of Wailai Avenue captures the spirit of the business. Friendly, approachable, and creative. Inside, past the chalkboard listing the fish and fish products, it's a community kitchen, a hub shared with a few local food businesses. Originally from Panama, Florida, Watts explained how she entered the seafood industry and her business philosophy. I have been a marine biologist basically my whole life. I've always been interested in the ocean and everything about the ocean. I came out to Hawaii as a longline fisheries observer with NOAA. Before that, I was a marine mammal observer in the Gulf of Mexico. I came out here to do the fisheries observing and I did that for about six years and then I have been running local EA for about six years. Moving from marine biology to the food business, so give me the connection, the story here. Okay, so I've always been really connected to my food. I grew up with family who grew their food. My grandpa gardened, we raised citrus, he raised cattle, we hunted and fished. We always knew what we were eating pretty much and so that's one reason why I like to connect people to not only the story of their seafood but to other food producers. So at Local EO we're, we're not only promoting that you know the story of your seafood but that you also support other local food producers as well. Where does Local EO, where do you get your fish? Local EO, we get our fish directly from the fishermen. Mind you, they bring it to us, we pick it up from them. We don't get it from the auction or any other retailer. We get it directly from the fishermen. That's in order for us to get fresher fish to the community's tables, as well as to provide the fishermen with a fair wage. So at the auction, they dictate the price, and at Local EO, we pay a fair wage consistent year-round to what the fishermen think is fair. You're a woman in this industry, so tell me a little bit about this. This is a bit unusual. Are there other fisherwomen like yourself involved? Yes, I am a woman in a man's industry, that is for sure. Um, it took me a while to gain the respect of the men, but I think the fact that I am loyal and I have maintained those relationships and that I'm fair to the guys, they really appreciate that. And there are a few other fisher women that I like to highlight and showcase as well. One of my friends, Jess, is the owner-operator of a local meat company called Forage, and she's a fisherwoman, and she learned how to fish with a lady named Tasha. And then we have a few other other fisherwomen that we get fish from. What's your background here from marine biology to food? I think this is so fascinating. 
So I learned how to cook from my grandma. I learned from a very young age just watching her cook, how to prepare certain things, Southern style, because we are from the South. So I learned a lot of my cooking from her. And then also I love to learn from every person I come in contact with and I love food. And so most all of my friends have some connection to food and I'm always learning different preparations and techniques from them. I'm lucky to call Chef Ed Kenny, one of my really good friends, and I learn a lot from him. I always have questions for him and ask him things. But we did always grow up using all of the animal and trying to use all of what we eat. And I think now these days we forget that, but we're going back to that here at Local IA because we take all of the fish parts and we make stock and we sell the stock and then we take the stock and we make soups out of the fish and the local vegetables and the stock. And then we also use all of our scraps to make pet treats, which are just, just the fish, nothing added. We just dehydrate that. So I just kind of learned along the way as I go. And then we also learned some preparations and techniques from the fishermen. That's kind of where I learned how to smoke the fish and dry the aku and all of those kind of things. Tell me a little bit about the people of Hawaii and how they do eat fish. We eat a lot of canned fish here too. And I didn't know if you wanted to comment about something like that. I think here in Hawaii, I really love that people appreciate fish, but I think a lot of times they're not so much tricked, but just kind of fooled in a way to think that some fish is local when it's not. And they take for granted that when they're eating fish, they just assume that it's local. And so I think the convenience factor plays a part in people eating canned fish and other kind of fish like that. So we're doing our best to develop different products that are easy to eat like those things. We do a smoked fish and then we do a burger and then eventually we are looking into starting a canning operation in order to help with the, the love for fish and just to have it throughout the year because canning is a way to sustainably get the supply when you have enough supply for the times that when you don't have a lot of fish coming in. Watts is a one-woman show, but she does get plenty of help. Among them, a backup band of interns, a customer who helps out because he believes in the mission, and a fishmonger's mate, which I surmise is a bit like a first mate. Hi, my name is Jake Franco, and I'm a fishmonger's mate here at Local IA. So far, it's been a great experience. I've been learning a lot about the local seafood industry and been working on my knife skills and been part of a really great community here in Kamuki. I'm doing a uh, natural resource management degree. So we're doing a lot of wildlife management and a lot of work in class with looking at fish stocks and things like that. So it's fun to see the parallels. While customers subscribe to Watt's fish service, she also supplies restaurants and has a presence at various farmers markets. She says she's dedicated to meeting needs of busy lives and helping to shift palates by introducing different kinds of fish to her clients. When does the fish come in and what kind of fish are you promoting? So we get fish pretty much every day of the week. We're only open for sales three days a week at the shop and then we also have our CSA service and we deliver wholesale to a couple restaurants like FET in Chinatown, La Vie in Waikiki, as well as Mud Hen Water and Town Kaimuku Superette where our kitchen is. So we get fish every day of the week directly from the fishermen and then we like to promote the Ta'ape which is an invasive species and we also like to promote aku which is a tuna that's just as high a quality as ahi but it's oftentimes looked over because it's a smaller fish and the fishermen haven't historically taken as good care of it anymore because ahi was so popularized but we're really into promoting sashimi grade aku and we have several customers who grew up eating the aku way before ahi was popular and they're really appreciative that we have the aku and then we also like to promote eating the parts of the fish so the bones and the kama and all of those things we like to offer as well. So tell me a little about some of the eating habits, what you've noticed, and people's shift, if there's any, about fishing over the years since you've been here. You've been here 16 years, right? I have noticed that there has been a trend to eat more poke and more ahi. We are trying to get people to realize that traditionally poke is made with any kind of fish. Basically means to chop is what poke means. So you can chop up pretty much anything and make poke. So the poke craze promoting ahi we're trying to get away from. Just because we don't want people to eat one fish all of the time anyway, we want people to eat whatever's available that the ocean provides. And so we're teaching people to chop up marlin and make poke or chop up 
up aku or ahi or mahi-mahi or ono, any of the fish that they like to enjoy, you can pretty much make poke out of. And so we're trying to get people to do that. We've been lucky to see an increase in people appreciating and eating more ta'ape as well. And ta'ape is the invasive snapper that we like to promote. We've gotten several chefs on board with promoting it as well. And people just had no idea that it was the same type of fish, the white flaky snapper, as other things they like to eat, like opakapaka and onaga and other things. They're all in the same family. It's just the ta'ape was introduced because all of those other fish were getting overfished. And the unfortunate thing is that they're colored yellow and not red and so people don't tend to gravitate to eating them here and so after we've explained to them and had other people show and share that the ta'ape is a good eating fish we've had a lot of increase in people eating it. Yeah it was really good I grilled it. (laughs) Yeah so tell me a little bit about this invasive species fish so how does fish get introduced and why? Fish come over either on purpose or not on purpose. The not on purpose is usually in a fish's hole or either an aquarium fish that gets released or something like that. If the fish is introduced on purpose like the ta'ape was, it was actually introduced by the state. And so they have a large quantity of fish that they release into the wild. And the thing about ta'ape is it doesn't have any natural predators because it was introduced here. And so it's one reason why they've been able to populate and grow as much as they have. And so we encourage the fishermen to keep all sizes of the ta'ape, even the really small ones. And so we're trying to come up with different products like a fish sauce and other things in order to be able to use even the really small ones that are kind of humbug to, to clean. But you can deep fry and eat the whole thing. It's really good too. Just to know what you're eating and where it comes from makes a really big difference no matter what you eat. And also just to try to support the local food producers as much as you can. I think those are two really important things that we try to promote here at Local IA. At the heart of Local IA is Watt's belief that the foundation of all business is community and doing right by the environment. She believes that drives loyalty and the spirit of her endeavor. My name is Abby. I've been living in Hawaii for almost 10 years, and I've been getting fresh fish from Ashley for almost five, I think. The part I like is that it's local fish. I get it every week, and I know that it's supporting local fishermen, and it's supporting the local food movement in Hawaii. So that is one thing that I like about it. And the quality is always great. And what kind of fish do you like to buy, Abigail? Always the ahi, and I like the uh, mahi. So she knows to save me mahi when she gets a good catch. Thanks, Abby. (laughs) Thanks. Okay, so I want to buy some fish, too. Okay, mahi, ahi, or aku? Oh, I'll have some aku. And you know what I really liked was your fish stock. That was great. Okay. Um, so I want some fish stock, and I'll take some fish gumbo. What that would be good. Quart? I'll have a quart okay. of fish gumbo. And then the aku, you want a pound? A half yeah, pound? Okay. I'll have a pound. Anything else that you want to add maybe to any aspiring women fishermen out there, some young women? I think just to do whatever you feel driven to do and and my mom always told me that I could do anything and so I kind of took that to heart and and I think that that's true about whatever you're doing as long as you're doing it for a good purpose and with a good mindset that you can do whatever you feel you need to do. That was Ashley Watts, fishmonger and owner of local IA. She was talking with HPR Stephanie Hahn about building community through good business practices. That interview originally aired on December 19th, 2022. Residents of Moloka'i have dealt with some of the highest prices for things like gas and electricity because of the cost of bringing everyday items to the small island. But one thing they have been able to have some control over, the high price of eggs. That's because of a program that's been in place for the past four years. Earlier this year, Catherine Cruz talked to Jamie Ronzello, Food Sovereignty Program Director for the nonprofit Sustainable Molokai. They actually pronounce it sustainable. It's sust ina Molokai. Sustainable. 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 Yeah. Sustainable. Yes. 
She was joined by Cameron Hero, who took up egg production on the island to supplement his income as a manager of a salt farm on the island. We start with Jamie first. Back in 2019-2020, Molokai was going through that real severe drought, and that led to a lot of starvation of the deer on the island and a bunch of cattle loss, which was two one of our primary sources of protein on the island. And so our organization, Sustainable Molokai, was kind of looking at community needs, what was maybe this idea of looking at a more sustainable source of protein for the island during this time, and also really wanting to look at reducing the amount of imports and creating a more secure and, I guess, sovereign food system really for the island. So our organization received funding in 2020 from the Administration of Native Americans to host a series of educational workshops, primarily to teach homesteaders how to raise chickens for eggs. So we worked with Maxi and Asagi Hatchery, and this was the program that we created where we walked these ohana through all the various processes. So from raising the chicks, feed and nutrition, flock health and wellness, to processing eggs and marketing. So the families also receive startup supplies and business startup assistance. So now, coming forward into the future, we're four years later, we've had 35 families complete the program, and we've had 10 more that just started this past cohort for the 2024. That's just a remarkable story. I mean, no one knew, you know, at the time you started this, right, that we would have this situation with the avian flu and the price of eggs just skyrocketing. So it's really remarkable that Molokai has been able to really help itself become more food secure. Yeah, it's kind of incredible, you know, and since the avian flu is still on the rise. We were just reading that article, right, that being imported eggs in the store, you know, now we're seeing them at $9 a dozen, and that might be even the sale price. And so we're at the point where we're all of our local eggs, and we just keep seeing the demand go up, and we can't even keep up anymore. And so our eggs are sold through a food hub, distributed through food pantries, and can be found in three of our local groceries. But usually they're sold out. They sell out that fast. The point of the program was not only just for subsistence, but also to increase the commercial availability of the eggs. And so we launched this eggs to market program where we purchased the eggs back from our local egg farmers. And so this is where we kind of created this idea of a egg collective. And we really kind of take care of all of the permitting through the Department of Health. And we're really become one of the first in recent history in the county and maybe in the state to go through the process and regulations to buy eggs from multiple farmers wash and sanitize and package and market those eggs. Well, I applaud your efforts. And Cameron Hero, jump in here. <laughs> Basically, I took the class, applied for the class. Actually, a little background, my wife and I had maybe six laying hands years ago. And, you know, we did the best we can. We had it from a friend and we just fed it and, you know, we collected the eggs and we thought it was a neat thing. Our life got a little bit busier and so we stopped doing that. But when I saw this come up again, you know, because we live on the homestead area, you know, we have about 35 acres. I've always wanted to diversify the land area. You know, there's no way I'm utilizing all of that. but. I wanted to continue to do things besides the salt farm. When I applied and I got it and went to the class, the difference between starting when I had six and when I went to the class was just the comprehensive, I guess, educational component of it. I mean, it's right through from, you know, like Jamie said, from when it's a chick and what do you feed them and how much do you feed it and when do you start switching chicken feed? And the support system has been great all the way to the current. You know, Asagi Hatchery's Maxi was mentioned and She's been very helpful along the process because currently the program, I think, uh, Jamie, was it 25 chicks you get started with? That's correct. Or is it 24? Yeah. 25. So, you know, because I'm a business person going in, I wanted to be able to have eggs for us, our family and friends, and, and become sustainable. But at the same time, I wanted to evaluate how this would do as a business. So although the program started off with 25 for, you know, each cohort member, I decided to go 50 and see what it would entail. Well, you know, going through that process, you know, I said, hey, I kind of enjoy doing this. And so currently we went for another 60. So I have another 60 hens where we built another coop and thinking of doing even more. And I wasn't really aware of this shortage of eggs when I had this in mind. It was just more of, you know, what could I do to diversify the land area? How could I actually make this a business? And how could I actually have enough for the family and neighbors and so forth and still be able to sell to, you know, sustainable Molokai? So that's where I'm at as far as this class. I'm excited to see what's going to happen in the future. And Jamie, talk about the class that you had this weekend. You had, what, about 10 people who were interested in doing this? 
We did. We actually, we had, it was over 30 applicants and we only had 10 spots this year available. So we had 10 Ohana that had joined us this weekend, but it was really wonderful because they brought their kiki with them. They brought their partners. And so all in all, there was probably about 35 to 40 individuals that were in the class. We really try to promote it as a family program so that that's where we see the most success when family members are involved. You have the basics that the participants are equipped with, but, you know, like Cameron, if you think you can handle more and want to buy more chicks, you have that option. Yeah, you know, I think going in with the basics with the lumber and the water and the feeder and the chicken feed, everybody goes in, you know, at a different level as far as what they see. You know, Jamie mentioned for their family and so forth. And so it gives you a great start. And, you know, for me, YouTube University, I go on there and see how other people are doing it. And and so, you know, with the basics, with the lumber and so forth, you build it the way you want. You know, they give you a basic plans. And I just did it a little bit different with what was given. But everybody has a different perspective, but it gives you the great, the good basics to start with. I think that's a good foundation is what I mean. And you've been able to juggle both with your, your salt farm work and raising <laughs> chickens on the side? Yeah. Actually, there's, yeah, there's actually more to, to, to that. Um, I've been able to juggle not only being the operations and manager, manager for the sea salt company, but my brothers and I run a restaurant uh, in the <laughs> local hotel over here, Hotel Molokai, so um, I'm doing that. Besides other things, and to answer your question, yes. I mean, I even, I'm able to sit down with the chickens in their coop, <laughs> sit down with them in their free range, and I found along the way that I enjoy doing this, and it was kind of surprising. I have plans of expanding it a little bit more. But Jamie, so this is really an opportunity. It can be something to supplement a family's income, but also to make sure that you've got fresh eggs when you want them. Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'd love to share just a a little bit of number. It's a little bit of an old number, but I always find this really interesting. Um, So back in 2019, we had a staff member collect some data from two of our largest grocers on the island. And it was estimated at the time that Molokai imported close to 9,000 dozen eggs every month. So that's over 100,000 dozen every year. So, you know, looking at food, you know, security, food sovereignty for the island, this is a real opportunity to kind of knit, you know, niche away a little bit at that. And so together, like all together, all of our cohorts so far have produced, let's see, I think it's about over 600,000 eggs for the island, which is roughly, if I can do my math correctly, 50,000 dozen eggs so you know it's just a start we're getting there but you know with folks like Cameron and some other um, cohort members who are looking at expanding those numbers are going to quickly increase too which is really really exciting well Molokai is leading the way I mean you can do it you know hopefully other interested poultry producers you know can somehow get in with this synergy and and this program I mean you, you get what some funding from the USDA correct we have, we've had some funding from USDA as well. That is correct. And so uh, are you aware of any other island that's doing this? Yeah, that's a great question. So last year, Malama Kauai actually started their very own PEAT program uh, modeled after ours, but of course, um, a little bit different based on their producers and their needs of the island. So currently, both Kauai and Molokai have a PEEP program. I love it, PEEP. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we call it PEEP, yep. <laughs> Poultry Egg Education Project. Gosh, I don't know. Anything else that you want to mention, Cameron, just from someone who's been through the program and, you know, has been successful? And I mean, it just sounds like that training was just invaluable. Well, I think it was invaluable, you know, when you're starting with no knowledge, literally, and you just get inundated with a lot of education. It's very valuable along the way because you're able to use it along the journey. I think for me, what's exciting is having other people do it, you know, starting off small with a lot of these cohorts, almost like small little businesses to try to tackle a bigger problem and just to find that um, people are excited about it. And we're able to supply not only our family, our friends, uh, but supply a little, a little dent, you know, in the eggs coming in. And um, always you want to make sure there's a demand when you have some kind of item or product available. So the demand is there. I mean, in fact, we're unable to fulfill the demands that we have. And I end up going to other cohort members to see if they have eggs, you know, for the demand. So, yeah, it's, it's a great program. Jamie, I don't know, any uh, closing thoughts about the success that you've been able to see on Molokai? 
You know, I think the one thing I would add is from seeing this program and seeing how um, the community has been really you know, excited for this program and has, has continued to have so many applicants every year. We're looking at hopefully you know, continuing the program in future years, but also looking to expand into doing something like broilers. Uh, mm-hmm. We're really starting to see a need and desire on island for uh, you know, that protein source of chicken meat. And so that'll probably be a similar program. We're hoping to launch it later this year. And we'll be working with Julius Ludovico on Oahu to be the lead educator. So hopefully not only will be eggs, but soon there'll be chicken meat, local chicken meat um, circulating in our economy as well. Is there a plan to expand it? I mean, if you had, you know, more interest and you had slots available this year. Yeah, if we if we absolutely, you know, the one thing that we're limited by is funding. So because we're a nonprofit, most of our funding to run our farmer training programs are through grant funding. And so based on that funding, we only have so many available spots. I think that if we had not unlimited, but more funding in general, we would definitely see that there's more community members and we could see this expanding a lot larger. Well, if there's a will, there's a way. And kudos to Mm -hmm. you both for what you do for your community. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. That was Jamie Ronzello, Food Sovereignty Manager for the nonprofit group Sustainable Molokai. And egg farmer Cameron Hero talking about how Molokai has been able to boost its local egg production to become more food secure. That interview originally aired on February 6, Help shape the future of Hawaii Public Radio. Nominate yourself for our Community Advisory Board. As a volunteer, you'll represent your neighborhood and advise HPR on programming, events, and outreach. If you live on Lanai, Molokai, Maui, Kauai, or the Big Island, we especially want you to apply. Apply by May 31st at hawaiipublicradio.org. When you're out and about, stay connected on the HPR mobile app. Whether you're on a run, walking the dog, or just doing errands, take Hawaii Public Radio with you. Stream the latest news and talk from HPR One, or experience the soothing calm of classical music on HPR Two. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Available 24-7 right from your smartphone. Available on the App Store or on Google Play. Beloved local chef Sam Choi has written over a dozen cookbooks with his latest titled Sam Choi's Ulu Cookbook, Hawaii's Bread Fruit Recipes. I sat down with Choi back in November to talk about his lifelong love for the gluten-free fruit that he calls one of Polynesia's food of life. He shares family recipes and stories about this island staple and his joy of cooking in the kitchen with Ulu. I was five years old when I had my first taste of ulu and just fell in love with it, you know. And growing up in Leia with a mixture of Polynesia kind of like all came together because of Church College of Hawaii, which is now today BYU. And then, of course, the Polynesian Culture Center, which is a great idea, bringing all the South Pacific Islanders all into one area. And then, you know, of course, watching them cook the, the breadfruit the way they did back then and the way I like it, you know, on the charcoal and get all black and kind of white and then peel the outside and then just dip that fresh hot ooh right into coconut milk. Oh, fresh coconut milk. And then as it gets riper, then it becomes a dessert. So when it gets soft, you know, my mom then when we were young, they used to cut it in half and just put cinnamon and brown sugar and butter and just baked it in the oven. Oh, man, that was so good. Oh, those are happy memories. Yeah. My, my, my tongue is... <laughs> yeah, your, t- your tongue is dancing. <laughs> I, can, I can just smell it and yeah, see it and taste yeah. it. Wow. Yeah, it's to die for. It's really good. Yum. Yeah, that is so good, you know I mean? So those are the kind of flavors probably like you when you grew up and your mom or your dad took you out to get dim sum or something like that. 
there's certain things that you just light up. You go like, yeah, that's it right there, you know? And that's why you cannot really tear away too much away from the style of cooking. You can, you know, you can kind of um, be creative and regenerate it, but the taste has to be the same. You know, I think that's what has gotten me a lot of places because people like what I do because I haven't really strayed away from, uh, you know, island cuisine or island food, but I've kind of, you know, beefed it up a little bit in presentation, you know. In this cookbook, you really broke it down very simply. Right. And I feel like I can do this. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, everybody who sees it, they go like, what is that? Is that a pineapple tree? You know, they go, no, no, that's breadfruit, ulu. Today, everybody has an air fryer. They make the best French fries. Ulu fries are the best. You know, it's crispy on the outside, very moist, but nice flavor. You know, you got that sweet flavor. Mm. I mean, it's really good. <laughs> I grew up in town. I'm an urbanite. And I saw more mango trees than ulu. See, maybe a breadfruit tree every so often in Mo'ili'ili. For me, it was still a very exotic fruit because uh-huh. I didn't understand how to handle it. Right. I never really ate it growing up, but it's a staple for you. You're so familiar with it, and you have aggregated it all in this cookbook. Yeah, it was a very interesting project. It took a while because Gay Wong, who's a owner of Mutual Publishing, her and Bennett Heimer, Gay and I had the idea of doing it because she knew how passionate I was about breadfruit. You know, as we got deeper into it, found out it's gluten-free. It is definitely a superfood. So we worked on it, and then almost three-fourths of the way, she passed away. You know, so that went back on the shelf because, you know, just didn't have the heart. But then Bennett, her partner and her husband, said, Sam, let's finish this book for Gay. So, yeah, we came back, and it wasn't easy, but Jane played a major role in making sure that, you know, we we did it right, kind of like we had all the work done, you know, and uh, Betty, Betty Shimabukuro, she was a ghost writer and worked on the recipe. Mm. She orchestrated the finishing of the pictures with Leeward Community College culinary team. Shout out to them. They did a great job. And Hawaii Ulu Cooperative also had yes. some fingerprints in this. Yes. We went out and asked if they were interested, and of course they said, yeah, because they have over 150 farmers that grow breadfruit ulu. They've worked hard. They got flour now that's produced in Hawaii. There's flour that they produce in Western Samoa you know, in parts of the mainland. I was very happy to see the co-op getting involved, and they're a great group. You know, they've uh, worked hard to create this movement of getting all these growers to bring their products to market, and they'll be the vehicles to put it in, like, Whole Foods, local markets, produce companies, like maybe one day Diotani Produce, a local company that's selling farmed items, getting it to more people's homes, Yeah. All People year round. Eat convenience now, right? Yes. It's, like, it's a very seasonal fruit. Right, it is. It's like mango. You know, you got the seasons of that, lychee, you know, lychee, all those other fruits, that tropical fruits that are grown seasonally. So breadfruits and ulu is the same thing, right? It's really nice to have the co-op part of it. You know, they're very aggressive in marketing, product R&D, and uh, to be part of that first book really solely designed to get the message out. And, you know, like I always tell people, Everything that potato can do, ulu can do better because of the gluten-free. So if you're a plant-based person, besides tofu, that's a great item right there. I've been telling a lot of the vegan chefs, hey, breadfruit, breadfruit, you know. So you're blessed with this knowledge early on in life. Yeah, it's been, you know, and of course I got educated too. You know, it's one thing about education. We can never say we learned it all because you know what? There's always somebody out there that's really much smarter but they know it much better. You know, so when I worked with the .org guys and then uh, with uh, Craig and their team, and then, of course, now with the co-op, it's just amazing how much knowledge they brought to the table. And it's really good because people, first of all, when they see it, they don't know what to do with it. Or when do you pick it? You know, so it says all in there. When the sap starts to come out and it's real plentiful and it starts to turn a little brown, that's perfect. It's still firm but it's ready, you know, you can peel it, it's so easy. You know, in Samoa, they use the coconut shell, a sharp coconut shell on a stick, like cap, cap over at the Ponte Carlo Center. When they peel it, they use that, it'll scrape the outside, mm. you know, a lot of hand wound, like you're scratching it, or you get a good potato peeler, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and then now they got it where you can freeze it to make sure that they can have it all year round. You know, because of it being seasonal, they can have it frozen in supermarkets, you know, just like when you see the Orida frozen potato fries and stuff like that, you're going to see, ooh, sooner or later going to be just like that. They already have it, 
but more on a larger scale. And we, as people who love to eat, it is like word of mouth. Yeah. Hey, I just found this great product. Yeah, exactly. You should make your curry with this. You know, you go to a Thai restaurant, you know, the vegetarian with the kabocha, that vegetarian curry is really popular. Now, can you imagine instead of putting potatoes, you put breadfruit in that? Oh, man, that's a whole different game changer right there. You know, I, I do a mashed potato at some events when I get the ulu. Man, they go, like, what, what, what is this? I said, it's not potato. You know, no, we know it's not potato, but it's really tasty. And it's creamy. And I said, that's breadfruit. Oh, my God. I said, you know what's good about it? Eat a lot. You're fine. It's gluten-free. No way. I said, yeah, it's gluten-free. You know, so, yeah. Yeah, so you're doing your part, spreading the joy. Hey, you know, it's like poke, man. You know, I love poke. And ulu has been my love, too, you know. Do you think that ulu might become more mainstream? Yeah, ulu will be mainstream. It'd be uh, once, um, you know, the co-op guys kind of get everything lined up and the farmers and, you know, Kamehameha land, those guys are looking at giving, not giving, but setting up land leases by thousands of acres to put ulu trees in there. I think, yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to happen quick. The flower part's really happening. You know, it's really excited. Uh, Western Samoa, they got the plants already set up. They're creating a lot of flower guys over there in St. Croix, Virgin Island there. They got the vodka coming out. The rest will just follow. I think this will be in every household, every market that's out there for a more healthier lifestyle, yeah. So yeah, I can see that going mainstream. You share in the book that you and your wife, Carol, moved to the Big Island in the early 80s. Right. And you planted breadfruit in your yard. You have Tahitian, Hawaiian, Ma'afala, and Samoan. The Samoan variety has Vitamin C, that's light orange on the inside. Right, yes. If you're going to plant, you plant the mafalo. All right. That's the one to look for. If, yes. you're, if you've got a little space in your yard, well, how much space do you need to uh, Well, you don't need that much space because what you got to do is trim it. You, know, you got to keep it in control, right? So it produces, you know what I'm saying? It's like mango. It comes out all one time. But there's an educational piece how you can steam it and then wrap it and freeze it. And it comes out perfect, mm. you know, or so V, you know, you drop it in boiling water, you know, but it comes out perfect. I, I just used it the other day on TV and it was a frozen product and it was like really like as if I picked it right from the trees. It holds well. It holds well. You know, it's one of the products that holds well. Potatoes holds well, you know, frozen. Mm -hmm. So breadfruit does the same thing. So just keep that parallel in mind. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, so yeah. So, yeah, so we got, you know, we, we grow a lot of things, but we got our four ulu trees in our yard, and um, they produce a lot. We have a section in the freezer full of them. Oh, okay. I've always, in fact, uh, tomorrow I'm doing a dinner, and I've got some friends from the mainland, from Oregon, and I'm doing an ulu dish. Kind of like a, a Samoan one where I cook it with coconut milk and onions. You know, big chunks of ulu and taro in there, kalo. And then I'm going to serve uh, lupulu, which is kind of a takeoff of a tongan lao lao. So, you know, get the lao lao, and then I'm going to put the ulu in the lao lao too. Steam it, just cook it like that. How do you retain all these recipes in your head? You're just like, boom, boom, boom. Well, you know, when I was young, I talked to some great chefs, you know, and I said, what makes a great chef? They goes to make sure you have a lot of recipes in your head, you know? So I've always kind of took that challenge, took that to heart, you know? I have a lot of recipes in my head. I like sharing it. When I pass, I want to make sure that my brain's empty. <laughs> no, your institutional knowledge. I mean, so in this cookbook, so many different types of, of recipes. Yeah, and you know, you want to you get, get to the edge of a table. You want to try something different. We can march to the same beat all the time in life, but then it gets kind of exciting if you do something different. You put the wow factor to your arsenal of all your recipes. That's what's exciting about food, mm -hmm. you know? This is like, I have something new to bring to the potluck. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Cooking to impress. Well, great resource to have on your bookshelf to start understanding this very simple ingredient. You even shared your one secret recipe for braised short ribs. Oh, yes. So you've been very generous in this in Well, this like I said, I want to leave everything I have in my brains, whatever is left, to everybody. You know, there's nothing to hold back. You know, I'm a, I'm a kind of like a new wave chef. You know, there's no secret in my head. Everything I do, I teach. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, look at the team that put it together, you know. That's the most important thing is having a good team. Yeah. 
And then the people that will pick up the book and purchase it or just have it on their bookshelves, hopefully they read it or stain it. You know, I like cookbooks that got stains on it. That means they're using it, you know? Yes. Oh, thank you, Sam. It's been such an enjoyable time with you. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? I just uh, appreciate all the people that are tuning in to listen to this. And uh, But I think everybody should have a breadfruit tree in their yard. I mean, it's sad to see some people buy a house with a breadfruit tree in it, and next thing I know, they cut it down. You know, that kind of like just, not irks me, but just go like, oh, my God, I don't think they were educated enough to know. I don't think they understood what treasure they had in their backyard. And there's trees that I see that just, you know, keeps getting ripe. So I finally make it a point to go up and knock the door and go like, do you guys know you got bread? Oh, yeah, we know. Do you guys use it? Oh, we don't know how to use it. I said, I'm going to take something. I'll make a dish and I'll bring it back to you. Next thing I know, they go like, oh, man, you got to show me how to do this. Then I says, if you guys don't mind, you know, I'll come and pick some. He goes, oh, you can help yourself, you know. That was Big Island chef Sam Choi sharing his love for ulu or breadfruit with HPR's Lillian Song back on November 15th, 2022. His new cookbook, Sam Choi's Ulu Cookbook, Hawaii's Breadfruit Recipes, is a comprehensive guide to the handling and preparation of ulu, done in collaboration with the late Gay Wong, Betty Shimabukuru, and the Hawaii Ulu Cooperative. It's out on bookshelves now through Mutual Publishing. Hawaii ties were in the top five of Yelp's list of top 100 places to eat in the U.S. this year. At number one is a restaurant named Broken Mouth in Los Angeles. It's owned by Tim Lee. Lee grew up in Kaimuki and graduated from Marinol. His family owns and operates Sorable Korean restaurant in a new location at the Pagoda Hotel. I had the chance to talk with Lee about how he was able to find success serving local food on the continent. How has the national exposure impacted your business so far? Oh, it's been uh, it's been incredible. You know, something like this, I, I never, you know, ever thought and fathomed that placing Hawaii on the map and, you know, Korean Hawaiian style foods, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. But, you know, our business definitely has grown from the release of the article. Yeah, we're doing pretty much double our sales. So it's insane. Wow. Yeah. And I, I saw that you were on the Kelly Clarkson's show yeah, <laughs> uh, and and then it was uh, it was pr- it's pretty entertaining too. What food did you bring that she really liked? So the Kelly Clarkson show, I mean, it, it was a recorded event. We had planned it out a little bit. Kelly did have some dietary restrictions, so we couldn't really showcase the whole menu. So we decided to just pick one. And of course, since I'm Korean, born and raised in Hawaii, I decided to go with the meat john. Yeah. So of course, I, and and meat john is really scarce and hard to find and I still can't find it really anywhere even since I started my restaurant but I wanted to showcase something that was more truly you know where I'm from my background and you know being from Hawaii being a Hawaii a Korean raised in Hawaii yeah <laughs> yeah that, that was my wife's gateway to Korean food as well was meat jun it was kind of hard to to sell her on it until I guess a, a co-worker brought it to the office one day and then after that she yeah. was she was game yeah she was she yeah, wanted to yeah, eat more yeah. Korean food yeah yeah, Michan's one of those things, even, you know, out here, you know, when I first started the store, I mean, I, I Michan was the first thing that I knew that was going to be, you know, one of my 10 to 15 items that I would choose. And it didn't sell at the beginning, obviously, because, you know, when people see the description of it. And for me, it's it's funny because, you know, growing up in Hawaii, you don't, you don't think about how to explain Michan to anybody, you know? Right. You just kind of know what it is. But out here, you know, when I read it, when I was thinking about the description, you know, I was like, okay, marinated ribeye, you know, thinly sliced, you know, with an egg batter, you know, and, and it's kind of a, a strange description. But a lot of people were like, huh, I don't know if I want beef with egg, you know? And, uh, <laughs> So, so it didn't sell that much, but, but you know, nowadays, you know, I'm, I, I explain it the same way as I did from day one, and, and people are jumping on that nowadays. So I'm, I'm incredibly happy to show L.A. a little bit of a small piece of a Hawaii yeah. style foods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome, man. And, and I, I yeah. love the name of your of your restaurant, the name Broken Mouth. If you grew up in yeah. Hawaii in the 70s and 80s, if you speak pidgin, 
then you yeah. know it was derived from the expression broke them out. <laughs> I have an inside joke with one of my friends, and whenever we eat something that's really delicious, all we do is just text each other, call the ambulance. And we know, <laughs> yeah, when <laughs> we automatically know that we just ate something, broke them out. Broke Can them you, out, yeah. 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 Can you share the story behind how you picked the name for your restaurant? Was it a process or did you choose it pretty quickly? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it definitely was a process. I had to think so long and hard about how I can, you know, represent Hawaii culture and, and everything and, and intertwine, you know, my Korean culture. But essentially, you know, representing the islands. It was a hard one, you know, I mean, I didn't even remember what the other names that I thought about, but there, there was a lot of weird kind of cheesy names that I came up with. But I don't even remember anymore because once I thought about thinking like, oh yeah, like broke them out. Like I, used, I mean, I used to talk so pigeon when I was back home in Hawaii, you know, I suit, you know, and everything. But I turned it all off because I've been here for like 13, 14 years. But you know, I always was just thinking, you know, like oh yeah, broke them out. And then so I was like googling broke them out, and I seen, you know, a couple of stores in Hawaii that like, there's that one on Big Island that broke them out grinds, you know. So I was like, I don't want to like pick the same kind of name as somebody, but I wanted to pick something that kind of maybe like explain my evolution of you know kind of like moving from hawaii to la the menu is definitely has hawaii flavors but but i i have to like you know change it up a little bit just to kind of fit the la cuisine and the whole restaurant scene out here so my first idea was i didn't want to talk pigeon all the time to everybody so i didn't want to have to tell people how to say book them out you know what i mean all day so i i wanted to like formalize a little bit and that's how i came up with broken mouth making it a little bit more proper English, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and still insinuating, you know, anybody local would still understand that it stems from Broke Them Out. It's definitely your restaurant, right? There's there's no there's no other Broken Mouth. And it, it's got to be a source of conversation too, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it always is, you know. I mean, everybody always asks me, you know, what? how did you come up with Broken Mouth? And, like, it's an interesting name because, you know, people out here, you know, live in the mainland, you know, they're not going to really understand what broken mouth means, you know, and it definitely is a nice conversation starter. People always ask me and, you know, I have to bust out some of the page in, but I'd be like, oh yeah, when I'm eating food with, with whoever and, and it's super good, then I'd be like, oh, bro, I broke them out, you know, and I have to bust it out to explain to everybody, but they love it. And, you know, proud to represent pigeon and... <laughs> I took a look at your, your menu online and I saw that yeah. many of your items are rooted in what we in Hawaii, what we call local cuisine. And, yes. But you, you also have your own kind of twist on it. Are there any local dishes on your menu that you tweaked that you're particularly proud of? So to be upfront, uh, I'm not really well versed in like traditional Hawaiian cuisine, so I didn't want to like go that avenue. But I wanted to represent a different piece of local foods, you know, Hawaiian regional cuisine. You know, everything on my menu essentially is all based off of my taste. So I had to recreate and understand the ingredients that were available out here, and everything was from scratch. I took over maybe like six months about to develop my little small menu. You know, I made batch after batch and I, I tasted it and I redid it, you know, and, and kept at that process until I was as satisfied as I, as I could be. You know, I'm not like an expert chef or you know, didn't go to school for it or anything, but just tried to make sure that the flavors were still on point as far as from a local perspective, you know. I just tried to make everything so that I felt that like everybody could enjoy no matter where they're from. Just a nice, simple, comforting meal, whether it's exactly like back home or if it does a little spin on it. It's definitely more colorful too, right? You have the the purple yeah. rice and yeah. and you kind of gave a lot of your your dishes kind of your own flavor and your own step. It kind of reminds me of how Hawaii is a melting pot of ethnicities and cultures that has, you know, produced food that is that is unique as well. It made me think that your food kind of kind of is an example of of how different ethnicities can kind of come together and 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 create something unique and, and tasty on its own. What do you think that says about the power of food to expose people to different ways of life? You know, I, I love food and I, I love where I come from, you know, being born and raised in Hawaii and, and, you know, being around all the cultures there. It's a huge part of who I am today. And I'm not really trying to create anything different. I just wanted to showcase to the world what Hawaii is all about. You know, coming from Hawaii, being Korean, sharing my food for love and family. And I feel that through all of that, people from everywhere can understand our culture and, and what Hawaii people are all about. I think it's a cool thing to, to think about people in L.A. that may be 
Caucasian or Latino or African-American eating your food that came from Hawaii that's a mixture of of Korean and and a little bit of, of other ethnicities. It just seems like such a cool thing that your food kind of brings cultures kind of together in that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. I mean, you know, there's ethnicities from all over the world, you know, in L.A. Ethnicities that I'm more, not as familiar with, you know, but, you know, moving to L.A., it opened my eyes to a lot more things. But I feel that, you know, like, as long as it's like comfort food, everybody can enjoy a piece of that. And that's ultimately what I try to do. And it's not only the food, you know, I mean, everybody knows how to make like really good food and a lot of great restaurants out there. And ultimately, I try to create an experience for the guests. Not only will they enjoy like the simple comforting food that I create, but it, it's also about the hospitality and the aloha that you give to everybody. You know, and first time customers come, they become regulars. You know, they essentially become family to me. And I'm out here in LA by myself, yeah. So all my family is in Hawaii still. So kind of doing my own little family out here, you know, yeah. <laughs> through food. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're spreading the aloha spirit and spreading your your love of, of your Korean culture as well. Right on. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it, Russell. That was Tim Lee, chef and owner of Broken Mouth Restaurant in L.A., talking to HBR's Russell Subiono back on February 16, 2023. Lee says his favorite places to eat when he's home are Adela's Country Eatery in Kaneohe, Tenkatsu Tamafuji in Kapahulu, and of course, his family restaurant, Sorable. And that wraps it up for today's show about local grinds. Got feedback? Share your comments or questions about the stories we cover by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Hawaii Public Radio, and on Instagram at WeRHPR. You can also listen back to past shows on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Or listen to the podcast version of The Conversation on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show was produced by Russell Subiano, Stephanie Hahn, and Lillian Song. Our theme music is by Gypsy808. And our backyard quiz Oli by John DeMello. I'm Russell Subiono. And I'm Lillian Zong. Join Catherine Cruz every Monday through Friday to listen in on the conversation. Mm-hmm.